0: So glad that you're with us this morning as we continue our study in the Gospel of John um, I am just personally loving being in this book. Um, you know I've had several people tell me that this is their favorite book of the Bible or if their favorite gospel or whatever and uh, you know it is, it is marvelous it is such a privilege to be able to study this book together so I'm glad you're here I'm glad we have this opportunity and we can set aside these next few minutes um, to dive into God's word and to uh, come face to face with our Savior um, through the scriptures that were written down for, for this very purpose so that people would be talking about them and, and reading them and teaching them 2,000 years later so that they can encounter Christ. So open up to John 4 if you are not already there. Uh, I'm going to pray quickly and ask the Lord to meet with us this morning and then we'll get into our passage. Father, we thank you for the opportunity Holy Spirit, we need your illumination. We need your help as we seek to understand the scriptures. I pray that this would not just be a material and physical act of instruction this morning, of someone explaining words on a page, but I pray that through that explanation, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the glory of our Savior, to the beauty, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have through him and the relationship that we have with you. We thank you for the chance to do this this morning. May it be fruitful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Imagine for a moment that you are part of an ethnic minority, maybe like a different country where there are multiple ethnicities and you are in the minority or even here in the United States, imagine for a moment that you're part of an ethnic minority and in your particular situation, your people are despised by the majority culture. Your particular ethnicity is looked down on and you are seen as being unclean just because of your descendants or your ancestors, and because of the way you look. Often in your culture, those, those who are in the majority won't even eat with you. They don't want to come in contact with you. Now, not only imagine for a minute that you're a part of this ethnic minority, but you're a woman in this culture, and this culture often views women as less important than men. But not only are you a woman, but you've had a rather difficult life up to this point. And this series of events that have happened in your life, some in your control, some out of your control, have put you on the fringe of society. You don't have a lot of friends. You're sort of an outsider. You're an outsider who's even more of an outsider. You've been married five times, which is very much looked down on in your culture, Not always because you wanted to. Yes, you made some poor decisions. But some of the men that you were married to died. Others divorced you for a number of different reasons. But there's sort of a mixture in your life of suffering brought from the outside and of bad decisions and sin in your own life that you've caused that have pushed you even further to the fringes of society. You don't get along with many people particularly with other women. And you don't get along with them to the point where when the women of your town go out to get one of life's necessities, water at the well that's located nearby, you can't go out with them to collect water. And instead, you have to go out in the heat of the day. Not a lot is going well for you. And when most people ignore a person like this, who has made bad decisions, who has had suffering happen to her, who's on the fringes of society, who's a woman in a male-dominated culture, who's an ethnic minority. When there's someone like this, God will move heaven and earth and arrange circumstances by his sovereign hand to make her encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the type of thing that God does. Look with me at John 4. Look at all that has to happen to arrange this meeting this morning. All the events that have to unfold so that she encounters Jesus at the right time. Verses 1 and 2. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And so the Jesus has been ministering in and around Jerusalem and out in the wilderness or in Judea around Jerusalem, baptizing his disciples and baptizing people, and the Pharisees obviously start to take note of this. More and more people are going to Jesus, even more than John the Baptist, who has been a very prominent figure, and so they start to take note of this, and because they are interested in Jesus's ministry, he feels it's best to withdraw And so you've got the authorities in Jerusalem involved in this whole thing. You've got Jesus and his decision-making, the disciples, John the Baptist. So many parties are involved in this. And so because of this, Jesus leaves Judea and heads north to Galilee. And the quickest route to Galilee from Judea is through Samaria. Look at verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now you probably, if you studied your Bible, know that the Samaritans, this group of people, this ethnic minority, were despised by the Jews. There are a whole bunch of reasons for this, but some of them, why there was such conflict between these two, is that the Samaritans only believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible— The Jews held to the later books, the prophets as well, but the the Samaritans only believed in the first five books. They didn't recognize the rest as God's word. And so because of this, they worshiped God not at Jerusalem where the temple was, but they worshiped God on Mount Gerizim, which we'll see later on in this passage. They didn't go up to Jerusalem. And they believed that the Jewish worship at Jerusalem was illegitimate. This wasn't the place where God met with his people. Instead, they believed that he met with them at Mount Gerizim. But despite this conflict and the antagonism between these two groups, Jesus passes through Samaria anyway. And not only does he pass through, but he stops in Samaria. Look at verses 5 So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. We'll see Jacob's name mentioned again later in this passage. It's important. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And in God's sovereign plan, as all of these events are unfolding, Jesus ends up at this particular well at this time of day. It is no accident that he is here. He is exhausted, but he's there at the right time where this woman needs him to be. Look at the beginning of verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, When God arranges, and he does arrange, an encounter like this, he will use it for the good of the person involved, and there will be ripple effects of this encounter. When someone comes face-to-face with Jesus, there are always ripple effects. You don't come face-to-face with Christ and encounter him and leave unchanged. God does not waste a divine appointment. Let me just say, I'm glad you're here this morning. It's not accidental, right? We're all here together this morning. Some of you are watching online this morning by divine appointment. And God may use our time together in a significant way in your life as you and I encounter Jesus along with this Samaritan woman. And so in this passage this morning, we're going to see three outcomes of a God-ordained encounter with Jesus. Three outcomes of a God-ordained encounter with Jesus. And here's the first one of those. One of the the outcomes is an offer, the offer of satisfying, soul-saving water. I've already told you that it's noon. Most likely, it's the The hottest part of the day, or among the hottest parts of the day here, probably quite uh, difficult to make your way out to this well. Jesus is exhausted, and here we find this woman coming out with her jar, probably a good size, in order to draw water from the well. She is most likely alone, as it was quite unusual to walk out to this well in the hot sun and draw water in the middle of the day. Now, apparently, it becomes clear in the passage that the disciples have left Jesus here. He's so exhausted that he stays by the well, and they have left him in order to go into town and to find food. Normally, his disciples would have helped him to draw water and to refresh himself with water from the well, but because they're not there, Jesus now initiates with the woman. Look at the rest of verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now, of course, this is significant. Look at the comment here in verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. They're gone. And then verse 9 is what's significant. The woman immediately draws attention to what we have already talked about, the conflict, the antagonism between Jews and Samaritans. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaritan? Samaria. For, John comments, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is the most obvious issue to her here, right? Like she knows what's going on. She knows this is not appropriate. This is not socially acceptable. This should not be happening. To her, this makes total sense to view the situation this way. She's a woman. She's alone. She's a Samaritan. Jesus is a Jewish man Some Jewish men believed and religious leaders taught that you could become ceremonially unclean by even touching something that a Samaritan woman had touched. It's to that level. And so she knows this should not be happening and she directly addresses the antagonism between the two groups. Jesus responds in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. (laughs) Now, when Jesus says here, if you knew the gift of God, you should absolutely think back to John 3.16, that God gave his only son. God, because of his love, sent his son into the world. You should absolutely think of that when Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, he's talking about himself here. And Jesus, as God's gift, brings with him the provision, the gift of living water. Now, they're absolutely, obviously here at a well, right? It's not accidental that he starts talking about this. And this well provides water that is necessary for sustaining physical life. No tap water in Samaria, right? So you have to go out to the well to get water that you can drink, that you can use to cook with. And so this well has water that is necessary for sustaining physical life, but the offer of living water that Jesus gives goes far beyond that. In fact... It may come as no surprise to you that the offer of living water is rooted in the Old Testament. And the prediction or the expectation is that when living water is provided for people, it's going to happen at the time of God's return to his people and the time when he is going to fully and finally set everything right. He's going to provide in abundance for his people That's what the offer of living water indicates. A couple of passages for that. Zechariah 14.8, on that day, looking into the future, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the Eastern Sea and half of them to the Western Sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. God's provision will go worldwide, beginning in Jerusalem, and it will be living water that will go out. Isaiah 12 and verse three, one to three, actually. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you, might bring com- that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, what specifically is the living water that Jesus is speaking of here? We know it's associated with the end times and with salvation and with abundant provision, but what exactly is he talking about? We'll get to that in a minute. But the woman clearly doesn't understand yet what Jesus is getting at. Look at verses 11 and 12. The woman said to him, "'Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, "'and the well is deep.' Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's obviously thinking in terms of H2O, physical water that she has come to get out of the well. And she makes an interesting comparison here with Jacob. Obviously, Jacob is the patriarch, one of the patriarchs mentioned in the book of Genesis. Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes, right? The sons whose names are taken as the 12 tribes. And so he is significant. He's great. And beyond all that, he provided this well, which is continuing to give physical provision and sustain life for the people who draw from it. So he is a great man, a great individual. And so she asks this question here, assuming that the answer is no. Of course you are not greater than our father Jacob. But Jesus is better than Jacob because the offer that he makes is better than the physical water that Jacob has continued to provide. Look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, what water is this? What water does Jesus offer that becomes, as you drink it, something inside of you that wells up and continues to spring up to eternal life? The water that Jesus offers is not something that's received from outside the body and into your physical body. That's not what he's talking about. The water that he offers becomes a spring inside of you and it cleanses you from the inside out and brings new life. And I think what Jesus is talking about here is the presence of the Holy Spirit experienced through the new birth. And that all together brings the gift of eternal life. What Jesus is talking about here is the gift that comes with the new covenant of a relationship with God. And that comes as you receive the water that is offered, the gift of Christ and his death and resurrection. You receive all of that by faith. The spirit dwells inside of you. New life happens. You are cleansed from your sin. And now you know God and have a relationship with God and are satisfied in him. Jeremiah 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Isaiah 58. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Anticipating in the future the new covenant relationship. And this is what Jesus offers here in living water. Christianity is not simply a lifestyle that is imposed on you from the outside. It is not a set of guidelines for happy and positive living. It is not a political perspective. Help us all. It is not a worldview It's not primarily an intellectual view of the world. What is Christianity? What is the heart of what Jesus offers here? It's new life, new desires, a new way of being in the world that satisfies and changes who we are from the inside out. What he's offering here is the opportunity to drink of God's living water and have myself satisfied in him to know God, to to live in communion with God and be known by him in a life of joy and contentment as my relationship with him is secure. That is what Jesus comes to this world to offer, living water. Now, once again, the woman doesn't quite grasp it. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. It's not quite there yet. So what does Jesus do? He certainly doesn't cast her aside at this point. He responds by getting to the heart of the issue. What does she need in order to receive this living water? And ultimately, that will turn this discussion to where it needs to go, which is about worship, what your heart wants. And this brings us to our second outcome of an encounter, a God-ordained encounter with Jesus There's the offer of satisfying soul-saving water, and secondly, it's the occasion. When you encounter Jesus, you have the occasion for God-glorifying spiritual worship. Ultimately, because of the living water, the new life that is brought through Christ, now you and I, this woman, as we encounter him, have the chance to worship God as he rightly deserves. This is what we were created to do. Christ's coming has disrupted worship. You'll see that in a minute. It's brought about an entirely new reality as people are now changed in their relationship with God from the inside out. So that's where Jesus is going, but notice how he gets there. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, "'Go, call your husband.'" And he asks this because he's getting to the heart of her biggest problem, the brokenness of her life. No doubt her sin had brought about at least a portion of this. This is her deepest issue and her most obvious problem. And so Jesus, in his grace, goes at it. And look how she responds, verses 17 and 18. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, Jesus puts on here a display of supernatural knowledge, and she recognizes this, and she realizes that Jesus is not just an ordinary man. He must be some sort of a prophet and have some connection to God. And so then she says what she says in verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, because of that, she goes to the heart of the issue between Jews and Samaritans. And this gets to the heart of her issue as well. One of worship. Verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So what's the difference here? Why did this come about? Were there two different locations for worship? In the Pentateuch, God promised in Deuteronomy that as the people of Israel went into the promised land, that he would direct them to a place, a location where the tabernacle would be set. Eventually the temple would come and where they would go to offer sacrifices and worship God. But he does not identify where that place will be in the Pentateuch. And so the Samaritans, because they only believed in the Pentateuch, look through there to see if there's any significant mountain locations for them to worship God on. And the one that they come to is this one mentioned here, Mount Gerizim. Now this mountain was visible from this well. And the Jews obviously believed that the permanent site for the temple was in Jerusalem. And so they built the temple there. And in fact... There was such a dispute over this that the Samaritans had built a temple on Mount Gerizim in 400 BC, and the Jews had gone in and destroyed it in 128 BC because it wasn't a legitimate place of worship according to them. So there's quite a background and a history of disputed locations for worship here. Look what Jesus says. He says, actually, it's not there, and it's not in Jerusalem anymore neither place is the end all be all for worship and it's not the end all be all for worship because everything has changed with my coming look at verses verse 21 and 22 there jesus said to her woman believe me the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem will you worship the father and then he says but honestly salvation is from the jews the the whole of the old testament are the scriptures And he says that essentially in verse 22, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But then with Jesus's coming, everything has changed, 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice about what Jesus says here. First of all, the Father is seeking people to worship him. It's an interesting way to say this, right? This is not God in some sort of puffed-up vanity trying to grab attention and get interest in him and have people tell him how wonderful he is. God saves people and calls them to worship him because this is the right thing to do. There's nothing vain about this. He deserves worship from every human who has ever existed. This is what you and I were made to do. This is where joy and satisfaction are found. Our greatest longing, somewhere deep within our heart, often covered by layers and layers of sin, is to exalt the creator of the universe in worship. That's what Jesus means when he says God is seeking. It's for our benefit and his glory. Second, he's seeking to save those who will worship him in a particular way, in spirit and truth. Why? Because God is spirit And so those that worship him have to worship him according to who he is. God is not material. He's not physical like we are. So he has to be worshiped in spirit and truth. In other words, we worship God. The worship we bring to God must be centered on him according to who he is in spirit. It must be done through the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts as we have received him in the gift of living water. And worship has to be in response to God's truth. One author put it this way. The worshipers whom God seeks worship him out of the fullness of the supernatural life they enjoy in spirit, the gift of living water, and on the basis of God's incarnate self-expression, Christ Jesus himself. Worship happens through Christ, in Christ. That's how we come to the Father, through whom God's person and will are finally and ultimately disclosed. Jesus is the way. You do not come to the Father except through him. He's it. He's the access point. He's the door. And worship happens through Jesus. And notice the Samaritan woman's response in verse 25. And then what Jesus discloses to her in verse 26. The woman said to him, I think she's starting to understand what's going on here. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us, all things, which is what Jesus has just been doing. Jesus said to her, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I love that Jesus so clearly discloses this to this Samaritan woman and doesn't in the same way with the religious leader Nicodemus. And that's not to say Nicodemus doesn't come to him later in the Gospel of John, but I love the grace and the mercy and the gift of this disclosure to this woman here who God has ordained this encounter with Jesus. I love it. Now think about the course of this conversation so far, right? It's sort of a meandering conversation going all over the place, but let's try to tie it all together before we get to our last outcome. Jesus has offered her living water, He's identified her her sin, her issue, her brokenness. And identifying that sin is the first step on the pathway to receiving and drinking of the living water to recognize that you are thirsty and that you need what God is offering. And now he points her toward the ultimate goal of salvation, the point where sinners and rebels are turned to worship God in spirit and in truth. And that's what he wants for her. And then the beauty of this passage is he takes a new worshiper, someone who has recognized their problem, who has recognized him as the Messiah, as the one who is promised in the Old Testament. He takes that new worshiper and he then turns them into a witness for him. And that's the last outcome of a God-ordained encounter with Jesus. This is, for us, the end point in action. It's the opportunity to speak as his witness. I love verses 27 to 30. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? Probably a wise move from the disciples there. So, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Clearly, something has happened in this woman's life after encountering Jesus. She goes back to town, leaves her water jar there, goes back to town to broadcast the news of her encounter with Jesus to everyone she meets. She forgets about her social stigma, forgets about her shame, forgets about what she has been through. The only thing that matters is that she has met this man at the well. And he's offered her living water. He's exposed her sin. And he has called her to be a worshiper of God in spirit and in truth. That's the only thing that matters for her now. And it makes sense that this would be the result because this is the heart of Jesus' mission in this entire gospel. Look at 31 to 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And as is typical in this gospel so far, they don't understand. They take it literally. It's a persistent problem, I think, here in this gospel. Verse 33. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? They're thinking very much on the material, physical plane. And look what Jesus says in 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Probably an allusion there to Deuteronomy 8. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus says that that is his desire and to do God's will. And it gives him sustenance and it gives him joy and satisfaction to accomplish the work that the Father has sent him to do. And that is exactly what he was doing in this conversation with this woman. This is the heart of Jesus's mission. And he explains that. Look at 35 to 38. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now Jesus is talking about a spiritual harvest. This is what he's come to do. And the disciples are able to understand this, I think, because they see... The wheat getting ready to be harvested. They see the barley. It's prepared. It's coming. And he's telling them that they need to be able, as his disciples, to look out and see that a spiritual harvest is happening. It's coming because Jesus is on the scene and he's working. He's working just like he is with this woman here. God's mission is to seek and to save those who are lost. Women like this. That's who he's after. And his mission is moving forward. In verse 38, he tells the disciples, you are going to reap where you did not sow. The entire Old Testament has prepared. People have been speaking about the coming of Messiah. And now you are going to open your mouths and you are going to speak and you are going to reap a bountiful spiritual harvest. And the disciples were able to see a very real example of the results of Jesus' mission here in 39 to 42. Look there. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, "It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world." I love what they say in verse 42. They're Samaritans. They're a, a lower rung on the ladder of society. They're despised ethnic minority. They're worshiping in the wrong place. They don't get their interpretation of the Old Testament correct. But Jesus comes to save them, to offer living water. And God, they understand, is now calling worshipers to himself from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. He's the Savior to them of the world and not just the Jews. And this is the pattern that we have that has been going on for the last 2,000 years. And this is, this is the basic pattern. This is what happens. And this is the pattern that we want to continue here today. What's the pattern? Someone encounters Jesus. He ordains events so that lost and broken people come face to face with their sin and come face to face with their Savior and receive living water. And when they receive living water, they become worshipers of him wherever they are around this globe in spirit and in truth. And then as they worship him and are satisfied by living water, they automatically turn around and go out and proclaim the good news of living water to those that they know. This is what happens. This is the mission. This is the method. This is how it has worked and this is how it's going to continue to work until Christ returns. And more and more people are being right now today brought to Jesus, encountering him and the pattern starts over again. So let's talk for a minute here, all right, about us as a church, okay? In light of this passage, what are we doing here this morning? It's good to kind of go back to the basics sometimes, right? What are we doing? Why are we here? Why do you show up every week? Why am I here? Why do I study to preach and teach? What are we doing? Why are we updating the facilities? Why do we have children's ministry? Why do we sing? Let's take a little inventory this morning, okay? We do not exist. We're not here for ourselves. We're not here because it's comfortable to come in here and come out of the world and be with people who think like we do and look like we do. It's not why we're here. We don't come here on Sunday mornings to get a little positive spiritual energy. I'm probably not real good at offering positive spiritual energy, if we're honest. It's not why we're here. You're not here to get your shot of spirituality to help you make it through another week and survive. The goal is not survival. You and I were not saved to exist and to merely survive and stumble across the finish line. We don't gather here on Sundays as a shelter from the culture around us, to protect us. Here's why we exist. We exist as an outpost. We're an outpost for broken people. We're an embassy of God's kingdom. And here's what we do on Sunday, okay? And here's how it connects to God's mission. We gather to worship the king, to exalt him, to hear from his word, to hear news from the kingdom. We gather here to build one another up in the faith, to encourage one another, to strengthen our faith. Why? So that then we can scatter. So that you can walk out of these doors during the week and seek to see others encounter Jesus. That is the mission. That's the goal. That's why we're here. We exist to worship God, to be strengthened in our faith, and to go out into the downriver community and around the world. And when you have tasted of the living water of new life in Christ, you've worshiped God in spirit and truth, there is a natural turn outward to others. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning as we end the service, okay? I don't normally do things like this. And don't worry, it's not gonna be awkward. I'm not gonna have you stand up or do anything like that. But here's what I want you to do. I don't like awkward, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit there and I want you to think in your mind of a person, one person in your life, who needs to encounter Jesus, one person. And I want you to take a moment, I want you to write that person's name down if you can, Or you can just think about it mentally. But get that one person in your mind. And I'm going to ask us to be silent here. And I want you to pray for that person. And I specifically want you to pray that God would bring about circumstances. That he would ordain circumstances so that they can encounter Jesus. And that he would use you to be a part of those circumstances so that that encounter will happen and that that person will turn, see their sin, become a worshiper of Christ, and then that person will be one who is calling others to encounter Jesus. That's what I want you to do this morning. And then after you're quiet for a few moments, praying about that, I'm going to pray, and then we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together, all right? So take those few moments here now and do that in your seat. Father, we, we understand that we do not exist for ourselves. We exist for you, for your glory, to worship you. And we exist and we're here now as an outpost that is calling other people to become worshipers and to receive the living water. We're, we're seeking to have others encounter the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And Lord we we often struggle with this. It's hard. It's hard to be active in your mission in this community, but we pray for grace this morning, we pray for motivation, and we pray that you would orchestrate divine encounters with others. That you would bring the right people across our paths, that we would have opportunity to speak to friends, to family, to neighbors, to coworkers, That it wouldn't be awkward and it wouldn't be weird. It would be the most natural thing in the world, Lord, for us to speak of you and for them to want to hear about you. We need your help in this, Lord, and we desire to see your mission accomplished in this community. We desire it, and yet we know we need to want it more. And so we're asking for that grace, Lord. We're asking for that grace in our lives. Ultimately, we're so thankful that we have received the gift of living water, that we have the chance to know you. We have a new covenant relationship with you. We can worship you in spirit and truth. We're so thankful for your grace. May that compel us and motivate us to seek the good of our neighbors, to seek to have them encounter you as well. We're thankful for our time together this morning. Use your word, Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray.